Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 14. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. This chapter is on all of our favorite topic, humility. This is a humility chapter. Now, in the beginning, you remember, after they ate from the fig tree, the Hasidic Jews think it was a fig tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, this is what the Lord said to the man, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. Now, we are not created to be trapped in cursed ground. The Lord has cursed the ground, and now they're going to experience death, sin and death. And we are not created to be trapped in ground. And that's why when you go to a funeral and you walk away, you feel a tension in your heart. That's not what we were created for. Death was not what we were created for. Soul and physical body were not created to be separated. And so that's very odd to us and very scary, and it's not... You hear people that had an out-of-body experience during a surgery or after a death experience and their soul was separated from their body and they see something and they're going to the light, but, but we, we were not created for death. So that's strange to us. We were created for life, eternal life, always life. And so death can frighten us. Even though Jesus conquered death, and we know that, he's conquered sin, he's conquered death, we know it, we know it, we know it, but when you go up to the coffin of your loved one, you feel something. It's, uh, we, we still have to experience death. Every single one of us has to die. No one's getting out of here alive. And some of our loved ones have already died. When I was searching for this picture of a coffin, did you know you can get a wicker casket in Europe? 239 euros. For, you can also get a cardboard box for 99 euros. And you can get a painted cardboard box with a picture wrapped around it for 279. Premium cardboard with colored picture. Monsignor John Essef has his own coffin in his office. It sits right there against the wall to remind him daily of his own mortality and that no one knows the day or hour when our life will be required of us, so to always live ready. So he has his casket right there ready to go. Now, this year, we will have Ash Wednesday, and we'll get our ashes, and the priest will say, remember, man, that you are dust. But in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, that's because of sin that we're dust. Remember, man, because of sin, you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. Some translations say, remember, you are dirt, and unto dirt you shall return. That kind of puts it in perspective as for humility. We're dirt. You are made, we are created from dirt. So we're talking about humility tonight. One word for dirt is humus, a dark brown nutrient, dead and decaying organic matter present in the soil. We're humans. Humus is decaying. We're going to decay. We're going to go back to dust. You are dirt, and unto dirt you shall return. Well, we were formed from dust, but we were not supposed to go back to dust. We were supposed to live forever with God in union with the Trinity. And so when God pulled Eve from the side of Adam, both of them were supposed to live forever, participating in this divine unity with God, life in the Trinity. And both were luminous with the glory of God, no sin on their souls in original glory. 
The Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. A mist went up and watered the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man. God formed man of dust from the ground, of dirt from the ground, of humus. Human man was formed by God. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Now, back in Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we know he's plural. He's, he's using plural pronouns there. So he's more than one person, but one God. And he wants to make man. He's, he's spoken everything into existence. He said the word and it was, and it was good, and it was good. And he spoke the word and it was good. He spoke through Jesus Christ, the word. So all things are made through Jesus. And man had dominion over everything, over everything else that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the very image of God, he created him male and female. God created them. So God said, God spoke the word in Genesis 1, and God spoke the word on everything except for man. It says God formed man. God formed man from dirt. God didn't have to form man. There's no, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He didn't have to form man. He formed everything created everything, excuse me, but he formed man. And our first sentence in the catechism says this, that God infinitely perfect and blessed in himself in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man. God didn't have to do it. God freely created man to make him share what? In his own blessed life, in the life of the Trinity. That's what God chose to do, create us to share in his own blessed life, the life of the Trinity. And that's love because they're a relationship of three persons and God is love. Love is God. So the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. Isaiah knows it. Oh Lord, you are our father. We are clay. We're earth. We're dust. And you are the potter and we are all formed by your hand. Jeremiah knew it, family of Israel, you know that I can do the same thing for you. You are like the clay in the potter's hands, and I'm the potter. The message is from the Lord. He formed us. God is still forming us today. You think he walked away from creating? God is creator. That's his job. He creates. He's always creating. Our culture is also forming us today, right? Your culture is forming your kids and your grandkids big time. It's telling them what to read, where their news source is, what their Instagram was. Okay, then bring that ad to them right now. Okay, now they need another ad. They reached out to another friend. Now she has to come on. The culture's forming them. But God is forming us today still because there's that hole in our heart that's only he can fill. It's only for him. It's like a magnet to live in the Trinity, to live in that perfect beatification and that perfect peace that he alone can fill. Paul says to the Romans, well, what does model say to the modeler? Why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty, another for menial use? God is so particular in how he creates and how he forms each person. He knows the number of hairs on your head right now. He is so individualistic. He has formed each and every one of us, created you for a purpose, for beauty or menial. The same lump of clay can make a beautiful pot or it can make a toilet. But they're both porcelain and they're both needed. And God can form them for a use and a purpose. God breathed into man's nostrils. God himself breathed into the nostrils of man. God breathed into man's nostrils, the very breath of God, distinguishing man from any other creature. God did not do that for any other thing on the face of the earth that he had made. Breathe his own breath of life into man. 
So after eating from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man had sinned and woman, and they took a huge fall from grace that day. And it was a huge fall. So now the image of God within them was darkened. They're still made in his image, but because of their sin, God's image within them was darkened, and the likeness of God in them was tarnished. So his image and his likeness gets darkened and tarnished. So humans have taken a fall. And now we're stuck, all of us, by our DNA with a fallen nature. And the goal of our human existence is to get back to the beginning, to get back to what it was, get back to participating with the divinity, with the divine trinity. That's what we're made for. That's that hole in our heart. We were created to be in relationship with him. So that's the whole goal why we're here. It's our test, our formation to get back to him. In the beginning, they freely talked with God face to face. And God the Father was there, the creator. God the Son was the tree of life. And God the Holy Spirit was the river of life that watered the tree of life. They were all there. And they participated in life with them, in their image and likeness, fully. Now we must allow God who created us to help form us back into himself. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. God is Trinity. And he wants us back in full communion, full relationship, full covenant with him. So he's going to help form us back to that. He's going to give us things in our life that are going to help form us back to him. This is how Peter says it. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become what? Partakers of the divine nature once again. That's his dream for us. And for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love because God is love. He wants us to abide in love in him. The first step back into participating with the divine life is baptism because you're baptized back into what we lost. You're baptized back into the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the first step. That's the gateway. That's the door. Baptism into the Trinity. Once again, to participate in the divine life. Once again, a little taste of it. The baby is claimed for who? For Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Why? Why do we claim the baby for Christ? Because Jesus Christ is the way back to the Father. He's the only way back. He's the one who opened the doors of heaven so we could get back to the Father. So we claim our baby for Christ because he's the way. He's the truth. That's his name. I am the truth and the life, the eternal life. Now the human formation of that baby can begin. And the parents and the godparents have promised to help that child get back into the divine life of the Trinity one day. So you want to pick godparents who have that godly intention. And a lot of young kids don't understand that. Because that baby, that's the goal, to get him back. Baptism is the first gateway, the first door back to the Father. And the baby gets a baptismal candle. And it's the light of Christ. And we hand it to the baby. Godparents light it. It's lit from the resurrection candle, from the Easter candle. And we want that baby to be the light of Christ. And back in the day when I was born in 1962, the ritual said this, that it included salt as a component in baptism. Do you remember that, some of you, that there was salt when you'd go to a baptism? And the salt was blessed with an exorcism, and a little pinch would be put into the baby's mouth. Remember? Because you are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world, little baby. 
You are the salt of the earth. Don't ever lose your flavor for Jesus Christ. And you are the light of the world, little baby. And he's the light of the world. And don't ever let your light go dim. Put it up on top. Never put a bushel over it, little baby. Because we claim you for Christ. That's our hope. So salt and light were both used at baptism. Luke says, Jesus in Luke 14 says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? Never lose your flavor for Christ, little baby. It's neither fit for the land or for the dunghill. Men throw it away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You are the salt of the earth. Remember God's bell? You are the salt of the earth. You remember that? But if the salt, you know, okay. I love it. All right. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. This is the curse. He doesn't curse man. He loves Adam. He curses the ground because of Adam. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust now, and unto dust you shall return now, because you've sinned. This is the curse to mankind, the woe to him. But God loves to create. That's his job. That's God the Father's purpose is creating. So the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, fully alive. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and in that breath was the entire Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God breathed life, and the man became a living being. Man became a living being, formed from dust, but formed by God. God said the word, and he was made. He breathed into him a soul. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. In the east, and there God put the man whom he had formed. God breathed his own breath into the nostrils of man. This will distinguish man from any other creature on the face of the earth because he has the breath of the living God inside of him. But sin caused that huge fall from living in that sheer grace and in that life with the divine trinity. Next time God breathes on man again, when is it? Towards the end of the Bible, we got to wait all that time for God to breathe on man again. And it's when he comes through the locked doors, the night of the resurrection, and he breathes on man, the breath of God again. And it's the next time God will breathe himself on humanity. It's on the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors were shut. The disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. Shalom. And when he had said this, he showed his hands and his side and the disciples were glad they had seen the Lord. And Jesus again said to them, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he did something that no one could do. He did something that he got killed for. He got killed for forgiving sins because they said, that's blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. And he told these 10 in the upper room that night, Thomas wasn't there. Judas wasn't there. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He gave those new priests in a new priesthood the power that only God has, the power to forgive sin. He breathed on them. He hadn't breathed on them since Adam. He's a new Adam, a final Adam, and he's breathing on a new priesthood. And he's giving them the power that only God has to forgive sin. God breathed on them the breath of God. We haven't seen it since Adam. God is always recreating. That's his job. And he recreates by his breath. And he's recreating new people. Fallen people can be redeemed. They can be made new again. They can be recreated by the living God. 
God recreates right there in the confessional. Every time you go to confession, you're a new man when you come out. You're a new woman. Everything's forgotten. God doesn't even remember what you did. He forgives. He forgets. It's gone. So he recreates. He recreates. He recreates constantly through the power of the Trinity again. The priest absolves you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God is still breathing on people, still recreating. The Ruah of the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. God's breath recreates something new every time. In Revelation, he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new again. That's the job of God. He makes us new. He forgives, he forgets, he recreates. He's made a new Israel with the outpouring of the Ruah, the breath of the Holy Spirit of God, a new Israel, a new church, a new bride of Jesus Christ, a final Adam who makes each man who receives him become a new creation in him. So man goes from dirt to the image and likeness of God. Then man goes from the image and likeness of God back to dirt. No, 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 no. No, man did not get cursed. The ground got cursed. The cursed dirt traps man from being eternally reunited with the Trinity. Here's Martin Luther, an error. He said human nature is like a dung heap covered by snow. No, you're not a dung heap. You're not a dung heap. You're made in the image and likeness of God, but that image and likeness got darkened and tarnished by sin. But you're good. You're created in God's image and likeness. Man and woman are very good. Man is still in the image and likeness of God, but God's image got darkened in man by man's own sin. God's likeness was tarnished by man by man's own sin. Woman was still the climax of all God's creation. The very last thing, things keep getting better and better and better and better. And the last thing, the climax of all God's creation was woman and would be again one day, many years later, in the fullness of time when redemption comes. Because salvation will come through a Jewish woman, a little 13-year-old Jewish girl. This is crazy. Who would believe this? Salvation would come, enter the entire world through a little 13-year-old Jewish girl. Her and her boy. Salvation is from the Jews, Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4. Salvation is from the Jews. I am he, you're looking at him, and I got a mom. And she's fully human, she's a creature. Salvation will come through her and me. The new Adam and the new Eve would both cooperate perfectly with God's plan A. This is not plan B when humans screwed up. This is plan A from before the foundation of the time. God knew this plan. And it's the pedagogy of divine condescension. This God of the universe is going to condescend into the little baby body that has to be burped and diapered. That's crazy. It says in our catechism at 684 that through his grace, the Holy Spirit is the first to awaken faith in us and to communicate to us new life by his breath, which is to know the Father and the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. But the Spirit is the last of the persons of the Holy Trinity to be revealed. St. Gregory, the theologian, explains the progression in terms of the pedagogy of divine condescension. Listen what it is. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father clearly, but the Son more obscurely. He's hidden. 
The New Testament revealed the Son and gave us a glimpse of the divinity of the Spirit. Now the Spirit dwells among us and grants us a clearer vision of himself. It was not prudent when the divinity of the Father had not yet been confessed to proclaim the Son openly. And when the divinity of the Son was not yet admitted to add the Holy Spirit as an extra burden, to speak somewhat daringly, by advancing and progressing from glory to glory, the light of the Trinity will shine in ever more brilliant rays. It's a progression of revelation by God. First, he reveals himself to the Israelites, then his son, then the spirit. It's a divine condescension. And then God comes down even lower than that to reveal the Trinity, which the Trinity is love. The three persons are love. He reveals the Trinity. And grown men, grown educated men of great stature, venerate a plaster figurine. What is this? What is this that smart, wicked smart men would venerate a baby laying in straw in a manger and go up and kiss him? Who is this? This is crazy. And he'll go further than that. He'll go down even lower than that. Further divine condescension. He'll put himself, his entire self, into a piece of bread, into an inanimate object, and he will take it over as himself. And then he'll go even lower than that. And he'll go into our human bodies that are far from perfect and far from holy. And he will go into our human bodies because he wants to commune with us that bad. He wants us to partake again in his divine nature that bad into the life of the Trinity that he'll give us a foretaste of it here on earth. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he wants to commune with you. That's divine communion. And it's extremely healing. He's humble. That's how humble he is. That's true humility. Last week, we heard Jesus saying to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're anything but humble. Pride always goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16. Tonight, we're going to see a Sabbath healing again. The third one we've seen in Luke of a man with dropsy. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler who belonged to the Pharisees, they were watching him, and they were watching him like a hawk. They wanted to ensnare him and get him in another trap. Generally speaking, the Pharisees were self-righteous. They had a pious exterior facade of religiosity, showing everyone just how godly they were or pretended to be. Behold, there was a man before Jesus who had dropsy. Dropsy is what we today call edema. It's a swelling of fluids around the heart and lungs, often caused by a weak heart or other organ problems, and you get swelling in the body. It's a very serious condition, and you can die from it. So think of this visual miracle. You've got a person just swollen and full of edema comes to Jesus. There's another icon of it, just the swollenness of his body. Jesus spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's asking them. The law is you cannot work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Because he's a healer. He's a redeemer. That's his job. Jesus saw this desperate condition this man has. He might even die. And he asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus knew the Mosaic law. The Jewish law of Moses did not forbid healing on the Sabbath. It prohibited any work done on the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Sabbath was made for man, for our rest and refreshment, for us to worship. But the Jewish leaders had added these fences around the laws, another 39 regulations about the Sabbath wrapping that law. So Jesus asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they were silent. They plead the fifth. They don't say a word. And when he took him and healed him and let him go, 
And Jesus said to them, which of you having an ass or an ox that has fallen into a well will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? So he's asking them, you know, which is of more value, a man, a human life that I breathe my own life into, or a beast, an animal? You're created on the same day. You're both created on day six, but the human's different. I formed him. I breathed life into him. Which of these is more valuable? And they could not reply. It's like us today saying, is a a human fetus or a cat and dog more valuable? Because abortion's legal. We can kill babies, but we want to save the cats and dogs. Which is more valuable, man or beast? Is what Jesus is asking. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. (laughs) Pride is the granddaddy of the seven cardinal sins. Pride is top dog. We all have it. The counter virtue for pride is humility. There's always a counter. Humility, 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 and it's hard. Here's what T.S. Eliot says about humility. Humility is the most difficult of all the virtues to achieve. Nothing dies harder than the desire to think well of self. Isn't that the truth? C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Witty, true. Uh, Lakota Way, the chief Indian says, when choosing a leader, we always kept in mind that humility provides clarity, whereas arrogance makes a cloud. Vincent de Paul, St. Vincent de Paul, the most powerful weapon to conquer the devil is humility. St. John of the Ladder said, humility is the only thing no devil can imitate. Satan can imitate. He's the king of imitation. He cannot imitate humility because he's full pride, full, full pride. Thomas Merton says this, pride makes us artificial and humility makes us real. Fulton Sheen, Venerable Fulton Sheen, only when a box is empty can it be filled. Only when the ego is deflated can God pour in his blessings. Some are already so stuffed with their own ego that it is impossible for love of neighbor or love of God to enter. When we're so full of ourselves, that's not humility. We have to empty ourselves. And, And Pope Francis says the world tells us to seek success and power and money, but God tells us to seek humility, service, and love. Give yourself away. You'll never be happier. So we're talking tonight about humility. Jesus goes on to say, he tells a parable to those who were invited, the Pharisees, and he marked how they chose the places of honor. And he said to them, when you're invited by someone to a marriage feast, do not sit at the place of honor. You know, the front row seat, you want to get the best view of the bride and groom, all that. But Jesus says, don't, don't sit down in a place of honor. Don't make a presumption that you should take the best seat in the house. You know, don't presume that. That's arrogant. There is a sin of presumption. We are so fortunate to have such a good shepherd. Our archbishop, this was at um, the Stephen Center where he goes to serve the Thanksgiving meal every year. I could barely, he's gone many years. I could hardly find a picture of him. I, I searched and searched, finally found this one because he's not doing this for a photo op. You know, he's doing this out of true humility to serve the homeless at dinner. He got there early. There's no people there yet. He's help setting tables. You know, he'll, he'll be the last one to sit down. He'll serve them. He probably will never sit down. He'll probably start clearing plates and visiting with people and, and never eat himself. So choosing to sit at the highest place of honor is a form of presumption. I presume I am to sit here. A lot of people presume they are going to heaven. They think it's a done deal. They accepted Jesus on March 13th at 3 p.m. And they're never, they're assured of their salvation forever. Nothing can take it away. People presume they are getting to heaven. When you are invited by anyone to a marriage feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest a more eminent man than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. 
So it's better to have humbleness versus humiliation. Don't presume. Wait for an invitation. Don't presume. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.